to Revolutions Per Minute, live from the new WBAI Studios, a socialist radio show and podcast from members of New York City Democratic Socialists of America. The Democratic Socialists of America is the largest socialist organization in the United States with 95,000 members nationwide, and NYC DSA is its biggest chapter. We are run by our 9,000-plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. I'm your host, Chris Carr, he and pronouns, and I'm a union member with UAW Local 2710 and a member of the RPM Collective. After Friday's midnight deadline, the United Auto Workers went on strike against the big three automakers of Ford, GM, and Stellantis, marking the first time in history the UAW has gone on strike against all three auto companies. As of this recording, 12,700 auto workers have walked off the job at three plants, a Ford plant in Wayne, Michigan, a GM plant in Wentzville, Missouri, and a Stellantis plant in Toledo, Ohio, and there are potentially many more plants to follow. While here in New York City, postdoctoral workers with the UAW at Columbia University and Mount Sinai Hospital are fighting to transform the working conditions for postdocs in higher ed. Tonight, we are joined in studio with Brandon Mencia, director of UAW Region 9A, and Chris Fiola, an auto worker and UAW member, to hear the latest about this historic auto strike. We will also hear from PJ and Andrea, postdocs from the Columbia Postdoctoral Workers Union and the Mount Sinai Postdoctoral Organizing Committee on their respective contract fights and how postdoc workers are ready, if necessary, to strike. We got a gigantic show prepared for you, but first, the headlines with Caroline Van Zeitz. Hello, listeners. This is Caroline with your headlines for today, Tuesday, September 19th. In local news, Eric Ulrich, a former buildings commissioner and senior advisor to Mayor Eric Adams, was indicated on bribery charges stemming from a number of actions in both Adams' campaign and administration. Ulrich had never completed his city hall background check and allegedly conspired with a developer to clear out fire victims from a Rockaway Park shelter in exchange for a deal on a luxury condo. While the district attorney was still investigating the case, Mayor Adams apparently warned Ulrich to watch your back and watch your phones. In These Times published an in-depth chronicle of NYC DSA's four-year fight to pass the Build Public Renewables Act. 
Mayor Adams' New York Police Department has dramatically increased criminal summons for minor offenses like public drinking and urination after de Blasio's previous administration dramatically slowed the practice. The jail population has also sharply increased under Mayor Adams. New Yorkers are being crushed by astronomical childcare costs while childcare providers are struggling to make ends meet. Timely processing of cash assistance and supplemental nutrition assistance program and cash assistance applications dramatically dropped in the last fiscal year under the austerity of the Adams administration. The city has finalized a deal with the federal government to use Floyd Bennett Field in Southeast Brooklyn to shelter migrants. The Adams administration seeks to weaken and delay the enforcement of local law 97, a major climate reform passed in 2019 that mandates building owners to retrofit building energy systems for energy efficiency. A popular street redesign of McGinnis Boulevard in Greenpoint was again delayed after an extraordinary amount of lobbying by local business owners and the public intervention of the mayor's chief advisor, Ingrid Lewis Martin. A real estate trust bought up dozens of single family homes in Brooklyn neighborhoods, renovated and rented them out at a premium. With the trust now looking to liquidate the assets, tenants are in an uncertain position. The Federal Transit Administration warned the Long Island Railroad, LIRR, in 2017 that the LIRR had not purchased enough trains to prepare for the opening of the LIRR to Grand Central Terminal this past winter. But LIRR appeared to ignore their warnings, leading to a chaotic rollout of the new train service. The City Council is considering a bill to require delivery apps like Grubhub and Uber Eats to purchase safe e-bikes for their workers. The updated COVID-19 vaccine is hard to find in the New York City area at the same time that the city is experiencing a surge in the virus. Vaccination locations can be found linked in the thorn. Job listings in New York will now have to disclose pay rates after a statewide salary transparency law goes into effect. New York City rents continue to skyrocket. For Revolutions Per Minute, this is Caroline Van Zeitz. Now back to the studio for today's show. Thank you, Caroline. Our headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by NYC DSA Electoral Working Group, covering local politics and radical activism. Subscribe at thethornnyc.substack.com. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I am joined in studio with by two live guests. So say hi to the people, uh, Brandon and Chris. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Chris Viola. He, him. I'm an auto worker in Detroit, Michigan. Hey, everyone. Brandon Mencia, Regional Director of UAW Region NA. Thanks for having us, Chris. Yes, and we have a lot to talk about. So, Brandon, you, you've been an RPM before, back when you were still a candidate for Region Director. Could you talk a bit about your tenure so far as Director of Region NA and what the reform slate as a whole uh, has been able to accomplish so far uh, in the UAW? Yeah, right. Not much has happened so far. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, it's been a, a very exciting and busy uh, first few months in office. Um, it's been an incredible whirlwind uh, trying to uh, reform disunion, empower the membership to take control and uh, fight for their demands across the different sectors uh, that we represent. Um, clearly, right now, we're in the middle of the stand-up strike against the big three automakers, Ford, GM, and Stellantis, um, that began last week. And uh, 
uh, President Sean Fain has uh, said that we will escalate action if there is no progress in negotiations on Friday at noon. So this is this is real. We're doing this. This is this is a really exciting time to be part of labor movement, and um, I'm really happy to be a part of it in, in my region. You know, my region also, you know, aside from preparing our locals in the big three to go out on strike um, if necessary, um, I've also been. Uh, you know, working with our organizers, uh, with the uh, higher ed organizing that we're doing. We're going to hear from leaders from the Columbia postdocs and the Mount Sinai postdoc researchers later on in the show. Um, but there's there's momentum all over the labor movement. Um, just the Alamo Draft House workers in in Lower Manhattan and Brooklyn announced that they are going to, um, you know, they reached the majority and filed and are going to be. Uh, looking to win their election with local 2179 of the UAW. So everyone is doing a lot. There's been constant strikes, and I'm really excited to to be a, a part of this right now. Yeah, and we're lucky to have you. Uh, Chris, uh, another returning guest uh, to the show. Uh, last you were on here early summer, the UAW had just elected its new leadership. Since then, um, what have you been up to since the election? And as an auto worker yourself, what has this build up to the strike look like uh, on the ground? Uh, yeah, the the buildup, I'll, I'll answer that question first, because it's been uh, completely different than I'm used to. I was on strike in 2019, and now we are doing our uh, strike currently, although my plant is not currently on strike. Uh, but it kicked off with a uh, handshake ceremony. Typically, the uh, UAW president and the bargaining team will uh, shake hands with the bargaining team and CEO of the uh, the big three companies. And uh, this time around, they said, no, we're going to go shake hands with the membership, talk to the membership. Uh, and uh, that kicked off the, uh, this bargaining session two months ago. And uh, my plant was one of those uh, were, that was selected. They did one of each of the big three. I work at uh, uh, GM and uh, they went to my plant, Factory Zero, uh, shook hands with us. People loved it. And uh and that was like setting the tone, right? And uh, we've been uh, having pe- practice pickets, uh, UAWD, United Workers for Democracy, the uh, the caucus that uh, Brandon and I are part of, as well as many others, uh, you know, have been pushing for practice pickets, uh, as well as UAW. Uh, Sean Fain has been pushing for practice pickets. We've been having those uh, for the past few weeks. Uh, and then uh, once the announcement of the of the strike was uh happened uh last year or last week sorry um uh we this when we all found out what the strategy was which was we're gonna we're gonna have one uh local go uh from each of the big three and 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 they'll be on strike and that everyone else will be working not with an extended contract because you can't uh strike with this extended contract but with a uh with with the with the um uh, expired contract. So uh, that's been completely different. Uh, we've we're not used to it, but a lot of people are really loving uh, this this new dynamic. Uh, all three uh, are going out. All three of the companies, uh, workers for the companies, and uh, it's been really interesting to see. And uh, yeah, I, I've just uh, I'm we're all amazed right now. Yeah, that's it's there's a lot of exciting stuff happening at the UAW, and and we're lucky to have both of you here to talk about it. You're listening to Revolutions per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI and NYC Broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. Today, we're talking about some of the incredible worker militancy happening in the UAW. Uh, but before we get back to Brandon and Chris to talk about 
the ongoing strike at the big three, we begin here in New York, where postdoc workers in the UAW are fighting for a fair contract of their own at Columbia University in Mount Sinai Hospital. Earlier this week, I sat down with PJ and Andrea. PJ is a member of the Columbia Postdoctoral Workers Union, UAW Local 4100, and Andrea is a member of the Mount Sinai Postdoctoral Organizing Committee with the UAW. So let's listen to that interview. PJ and Andrea, it's great to have you both on Revolutions Per Minute. Before we begin, first, can you both uh, introduce yourselves, uh, your role in your respective unions, uh, and also a bit about what were some of the motivating forces in your lives that drove you both to get involved into worker organizing? Sure. Thanks, Chris. So I'm a third-year postdoc at Mount Sinai. Um, currently, my research is on women's health and the role of the vaginal microbiome in pregnancy outcomes. Um, actually, I did my PhD at the University of Washington where grad students were unionized. Um, so I think that would be the start of um, my experience and love for uh, academic labor unions. When I was there in 2018, we were going through um, the contract negotiations and actually went on a short strike. Um, so that was something I had experience with prior to coming to Sinai. The postdocs at Sinai voted to form their union last July and um, have been fighting for our first contract since October. We definitely looked to the Columbia postdocs as an example. Uh, they were the first postdoc union at a private university in the U.S. And, you know, it's been long fight, almost a year for improving our working conditions at Sinai, but it's been um, great to do it, you know, in coordination with the Columbia postdocs. So I'm PJ Brun. I'm a, so I'm an ARS at uh, Columbia, and my research is on vitamin A and uh, energy metabolism in the pancreas. So I have been involved in the union since about 2018, so it's been a very long fight. I was part of the first bargaining committee, uh, negotiated the first contract in 2020, and I was part of the e-board during the three year of the contract uh, as a financial secretary. M my motivation was really you know, I, I had been a postdoc at Columbia, and I just found it really a tough experience. I, I'm not naturally going to go to a union, but with the experience that I had and seeing how everyone was going through really tough time during their postdoc, you know, I, I just feel that we, something had to change, and, and the union really looked like the best way to improve our conditions. Yeah, thanks for that. I, yeah, it's great to have both of you here because I think often being a postdoc is often an unsung profession. As, as a grad student myself, I, I didn't really know like what a postdoc even was until probably like my senior year of high school or my first, my first year of college. So for those who are listening who may be less familiar with like the role of a postdoc, could you talk a bit about the working conditions and, and life and expectations of postdocs? and how that environment made union representation like so necessary? We just finish our PhD and then we go on and it's, it, traditionally it's been seen as extra training, postdoc being extra training before becoming an independent investigator. You do a little bit of everything. And at the beginning of the postdocs, you're, you're often learning more techniques and trying to get you know, really good publications. And then you start applying for grants and for your own money in order to become independent. 
And that's, you know, the gold ticket is to do that. But in terms of then the day-to-day -day work, you know, we have a principal investigator above us that is directing our research and that is providing the resources for the research work. And you've got a project and you've got to, you know, pull it off as much as you can. And what, one part that makes life of a postdoc very difficult is that it, oftentimes you're, you don't have a total say on what your investigation is. And the result depends on nature. Is the hypothesis that led to the grant being funded for your PI going to be accurate and thus lead to a major publication? And in many ways, you can do everything right. If the hypothesis was wrong, you might get the great publication and the career improvement that you're looking for. So, you know, that is one part of the condition of the postdoc that's out of his hand that makes, you know, that time in your life quite difficult. Yeah, I would add that postdocs are often considered as like the workhorses of the lab. So PJ mentioned the principal investigator who is writing grants and getting resources for the lab, but really they're usually not doing the day-to-day -day very much. And so postdocs are really the most senior researchers on the ground. They're managing multiple projects and training and mentoring students and doing a lot of the writing and presenting at conferences. It's a lot of work that's often put on the postdocs and PJ was also giving a sense of the pressure, the extraordinary pressure that's on postdocs because it's a, um, a critical time in our careers where the need for productivity is really high um, and it feels like there's a short window to demonstrate that. And I think that's really led to institutions kind of exploiting um, us as, as a position classification. Um, because we're seen as temporary, there's historically not been an interest in giving us some of these like retention type benefits like childcare, uh, supporting postdocs who are parents, or retirement, because we're not probably staying at the institution for the long term. Um, of course, salary is a big one. Postdocs have historically been very underpaid too. The majority of U.S. postdocs are foreign workers, and I think that's also led to uh, different types of exploitation in academia. So there's like a lot of factors that go into uh, what a postdoc is and how we're treated so in most ways poorly by our institutions. Yeah, yeah, because I, th I think as a, as a postdoc, you kind of exist in this weird limbo space where, like, you have a PhD, you have a terminal like degree, and you're considered like one of the world experts in your field. But at the same time, you're also expendable and the workhorse of the lab, as you're saying, and yeah. and, be and being in that tentative, like, really insecure space really opens you up to the, these sorts of blatant exploit sorts of exploitation. So yeah, I, I think it's a very tentative position, which makes. I think union representation quite necessary. Uh, both of your respective unions, uh, both at Columbia and at Mount Sinai, are are in the midst of negotiations for for a new contract. Uh, I think Columbia postdocs this would be your your second contract, where with Mount, Mount, Mount Sinai you're negotiating for your first contract. So, what would you say are some of your key demands uh, from your respective uh, institutions? Right, uh, like you mentioned, we're in our campaign for our first contract. So far, we've had most of our negotiations on our non-economic demands. The major sticking points have been um, this 
idea of job security. One of the benefits of having a union and every post-tech union nationwide has just cause protections. So postdocs can be fired for performance issues. But for example, if you move across countries to a new lab and are starting a position here at Sinai, your PI, your principal investigator should not be able to terminate you for no reason, for a personality problem or because they don't like you. This is something that happens, unfortunately, fairly regularly at Mount Sinai. Um, and it's a major demand uh, of our contract campaign is to win just cause protections for our postdocs. Another major non-economic issue is protections against discrimination and harassment. Harassment is unfortunately widespread in academia because of this, because of, I think, the decentralized nature of supervision. Every university has hundreds of independent laboratories and it's uh, totally managed by uh, these individual principal investigators who have a lot of power over their postdocs and graduate students. And what we're demanding is for explicit protections, um, supportive measures, an ability to file grievances in, in our contract and not just refer to the existing policies at Mount Sinai, which we believe are insufficient. Of course, we have a lot of other economic demands. We're looking for increases to our salary, um, increased support for postdocs who are parents uh, with childcare stipends, paid parental leave. We're looking for extended housing support. And so these will become major focuses of our campaign once uh, Sinai responds to our proposals in the near future. For us, I have to say the what Andrea described is really typically the fight for the first contract. And it is absolutely essential. And, you know, those issues cannot be uh, in contradiction to the economic issues. You know, one of the big force driving our union, it, it was the bullying issue, that there is a lot of bullying going on in the labs because there is so much power in the hands of the PI. And we've added some anti-bullying you know, definition that is now grievable and arbitrable in our contract. And, and that's, you know, just tremendously important. Now, let's be clear. The second contract for us is a lot about economics. And fundamentally, what we want is for Colombia to give some institutional support for research. We, we are very well aware that if money only comes out of grants and from our PIs, it is just insufficient to provide uh, you know, living in New York City in 2023. And so we are demanding that Colombia contributes to uh, our salary, our compensation in some ways. And the way that we found was really through what we call a housing stipend, because housing cannot be charged on an NIH grant. So it has to come directly from Colombia money. And we're asking for you know, Colombia to contribute to our salaries through a housing stipend. Another huge thing, of course, is like she mentioned, is, is child care. Uh, we want some significant increase in child care because, you know, it's just impossible to raise a family with the cost of child care being in the twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 a year for postdocs. You know, our salaries just can't meet that. And 
we are at a prime reproductive age. You know, we are in our 30s, most of us. And, and you know, this is the time where we need to start having fa our families if, if that's our choice. And, you know, with the salaries, we, we can't. It's just not possible. And that's a major injustice to postdocs. Uh, having to sacrifice, you know, their life, their family life for their research. And of course, it's, you know, very, very difficult for, especially for women that tend to not do a postdoc or not stay in academia because of that. And then the last thing is we wanted a, a COLA adjustment, a cost of living adjustment. And to make sure that if inflation continues or a new wave of inflation arrives, uh, we would be protected and that we would not lose our purchasing power every year. But the essence is that we want Colombia, institutional money from Colombia, to contribute to our salaries now. I'll just underscore uh, PJ's point about um, how these changes will make our institutions more inclusive, diverse, and equitable because the failure of um, academia and like postdoc working conditions to support women, people who are parents, international workers, you know, at these salaries with these benefits, it's really impossible for um, people without privilege and other financial support um, to stay in academia. And so these changes that postdocs are demanding will really improve science and benefit our institutions in the long term. When we look at the finance of Colombia, it really, it, they have a lot of money. It's a choice that they leave those postdocs in those situations economically and, you know, to have to make such, such hard decision for their careers. And so, yeah, the economic argument is that Colombia can easily afford, you know, the little raises that we're demanding. And when I say little, it's they're very significant for our life. But compared to the amount of money that we do bring through our work, it's not that much. So both the Columbia postdocs and the Mount Sinai postdocs recently held a strike authorization vote where, in both cases, an overwhelming majority of postdocs voted to authorize a strike uh, if needed. If you could talk a bit about that process of the strike authorization vote, and after that vote, has there been any shift in management's position? The reason we took this vote is because ultimately we want to reach a agreement with administration at the bargaining table. But seeing the delays and the pace of bargaining from their side, we knew that we needed to escalate and increase pressure on them. And so what we were asking uh, postdocs to do is indicate by a vote in favor of strike authorization that they would be willing to go on strike if necessary um, to to win our demands. Um, after our 90% vote in favor, have held uh, one bargaining session, one or two, I think, and we did see extra additional movement from administration in that one of the things that they've been delaying on is responding to our economic proposals. We sent over proposals in uh, late June. So at this point, it's been three months without hearing any response on these important issues uh, of salary, housing, childcare. Um, but after the results of our strike authorization vote, they gave us a deadline. So they said September 29th, they will have a comprehensive uh, response on our economic proposals. And so that really gives us something to organize around and something to demand a really strong response from Sinai 
um, to meet us in the economic demands that we're making. We, we basically had our strike authorization vote in, in August. And so it, it came after already like two, three months of really hard bargaining and us, you know, the contract ending without a renewal contract. And, you know, we were very far apart on economic matters and we still had some non-economic matters open. And I have to say that there is no doubt that when you one comes in in the lab to organize, you know, people come to us and it's like, oh, please don't give up, continue fighting. No, we want more. So I think it is good for the spirit when we talk to our colleagues uh, because they are so supportive of us and our bargaining. And so there were a lot of, you know, hard conversation on, you know, whether a strike was a solution. Was it possible? Was it, And I have to say, we were overwhelmed by the support and, you know, they, they really do want to fight with us. And, you know, basically the, the union is them. You know, we make one with our membership. So then the, what happened after we got the strike authorization vote, we got two bargaining session. They went up a little bit uh, from you know, 63.6 to 65K a year minimum. But honestly, the, you know, the major demand, which is the institutional support is still, and the housing stipend is absolutely out of the question in their mind. And, you know, they're basically saying, you know, that's pie in the sky, no way. Uh, so we've seen some very minimal change. And what has ramped up is their demand to go to mediation. And so we actually accepted to have a mediator present at our next two bargaining sessions. Uh, but, you know, ultimately, you know, we're getting ready for a strike. For us, it, it's part of the mobilization. It's part of the organizing is right now it's to get ready for a strike. We hope it doesn't happen. We hope that we can resolve things at the bargaining table. But if we can't and we have to strike, we're getting ready for it. Both of you here representing two different unions. So why is that unity across institutions important? And what lessons can that teach other postdocs trying to unionize across the country and academic workers as a whole organizing in, in higher ed? I think it's so important for um, our postdocs to see solidarity with Columbia postdocs. And, you know, together we represent more than 2,000 postdocs across the city. Um, and the power in that number of people is huge. It's more than either of our institutions alone. So I think um, being able to coordinate our actions, do things like the strike vote and upcoming actions and eventually, you know, if we need to go on strike to do that together is so powerful for us and hopefully, you know, will increase pressure on our institutions as well. And then, you know, like you mentioned, uh, academic labor organizing is a nationwide movement. So we've certainly been talking with postdocs at the University of California and the University of Washington, who both went on successful strikes in the past year, successful historic strikes, actually, um, and made major contract gains. So seeing that example across the country um, has been really uh, motivating and inspirational. And then looking forward, we know that there are thousands of other postdocs organizing in New York City um, and across the country. The fight that we're fighting right now for our first contract will be an example to them, an example of what postdocs can win when we stand together. And that's something that we're really cognizant of. And we, you know, we want to we want to do a good job. 
Thanks. Uh, it's hard to come after Andrea. She really said it all very well. The, our problems are just so similar. I, I listened to Andrea and, you know, it's really us in 2020. Uh, you know, and, and I think that there is such similarities in the problems and the conditions of being a postdoc that, yeah, it, it really makes sense that we unify our forces and work together to improve the conditions of the postdoctoral worker. You know, whether it's on salary, whether it's on harassment, job security, childcare, those issues we share completely. We're at the same stage and, you know, it, it makes absolute sense to join together. I hope that, you know, Mount Sinai gets their, their local, their, gets their first contract and that we can join. And many more, many more universities in New York and around. University Broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. You just finished listening to my interview with PJ and Andrea, postdocs at Columbia and Mount Sinai, fighting for a fair contract. But before we turn to our live guests, we should take a moment to recognize that all of this wouldn't be possible without you, the listener, and your generous financial support. Times are tough for all of us right now, and that is why any dollar amount you can spare if it's $5, $10, $25, really goes a long way towards keeping WBAI on the air and blaring at 99.5 FM all day, every day. So I, I wanted to turn this over to one of our live guests, Brandon. Uh, do you have any response to what we just heard from the postdoc workers here in Region 9A? Yeah, I think... Um the way that the postdoc workers at both Sinai and uh, Columbia are, are coordinating and working together is really impressive. And, and I think it's building power. Um, I think we're not only in a higher ed organizing uh, moment right now, we're specifically, I think, in a researcher and postdoc organizing moment. And I think we need to take uh, you know full advantage of that momentum and that wave to be able to push for the strongest contracts possible. Um, and I think, you know, these two units, these, these two groups of workers are really, I think, um, you know, setting the example of, of, of what um, is achievable um, when, you, when you fight and are working in, across uh, different units. So I'm really excited for, to see where this goes. Um, I think both are prepared to the strike authorization vote, so they're both prepared to, to strike if necessary. And... Uh, Sinai, both Sinai and Columbia, the institutions know um, that, um, you know, if they win, we're basically setting standards across um, the industry for researchers and postdocs specifically. So they want to beat this back. Um, and these workers are committed to, to fighting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and Chris, I wanted to throw this other question to you of what does it mean to have like the sort of worker-led media like WBAI and Revolutions Permanent to platform these these sorts of perspectives and like why why is that an important like like repertoire and in this media environment? Uh, yeah, I love it. It's uh, anyone who centers the worker, who talks to the worker, who spends time to get the real story from the workers when you know you get into labor disputes, strikes, and and just 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 dealing with, you know, being, uh, living and, and working, being a working person, which uh, most of us are, uh, is super important. And, uh, I know that we, uh, 
we in UAW definitely appreciate it. Uh, the auto workers are loving uh, the attention by some of the uh, worker led uh, media, such as yourself and, and others. And uh, you know, who, who best to who best to talk to workers than uh, workers and and the 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 led media that uh, the, the media that they are leading. So uh, you know, we used to have that in UAW. Uh, 1948, Ashley Public Radio. Uh, we owned that in in Detroit for about four years. A uh, little known fact, uh, and uh, I think it's time to get back to that sort of thing. So uh, yes, please donate. Uh, we love. Uh, I love you guys. Uh, I've been on three times, and uh, thank you so much for listening to you know an auto worker from Detroit. <laughs> thank you, Chris. Yeah, so if this kind of media speaks to you, if you believe in the mission that we do here at Revolutions Per Minute. If you're inspired by the tremendous courage of UAW workers on strike, then please don't hesitate to spare what you are able to give. To give to the station, please call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. It would be an understatement to say that every dollar counts because the station needs every bit of it if it's going to afford New York rent prices, if we're going to pay our bills, maintain all of our equipment and pay our incredible staff like Reggie. So if, if you don't like calling people, then that's all right too. You can go online to WBAI.org and follow the links to send your donation. We know times are hard for everyone, but if you are in a position to give monthly, then please join us to be a WBAI buddy. As a WBAI buddy, not only will you be sustaining our operations here at the station, or get cool perks like tote bags or other merch. Uh, but also, if your donation exceeds $25, you become a voting member in WBAI, putting the power and voice in your hands as a listener. So how many radio stations allow that? Not many. And I think that's one of the true beauties of WBAI and what we're trying to do here. Being a WBAI buddy means that you get to be a citizen of the station in our radio democracy. So by do donating to the station and giving monthly as a WBEI buddy, you are doing your part to keep worker-led media alive. To give to the station, please call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Or go to WBAI.org. Tell them Revolution for Minute sent you. Thank you. Okay, with that out of the way, we can finally turn to Chris and Brandon about this incredible stuff happening in, in the UAW, this massive strike uh, that's happening against the big three auto automakers. We're, we're, we're approaching the last 15 minutes or so of the, of the show, so we'll have to, we'll have to be tight, but it, there's so much to cover. So um, first, I wanted to throw this question to Chris, uh, being uh, an auto worker yourself and someone who's been intimately involved, not only in the workplace, but also involved with the UAW. Uh, if you can describe a bit about how the, the deterioration of working conditions in the auto industry has has really contributed to to where we are now, and and if this strike that we're currently witnessing and participating in has the potential to be different from past strikes uh, in this sector. Uh, yeah, uh, I would say that the major thing that has uh, changed over the past, the main deterioration. Uh, in auto has been tears, uh, right when I was hired, uh, literally the day after, if you were hired after me, uh, October 15th, 2007, uh, you were making less money than I was. And actually, if you're hired now, uh, today, 
in in a lot of in a lot of uh, parts of the uh, auto industry, you are making less than I was making in two thousand six as a as a temp. So, yeah, that's been that's been a huge issue. Uh, it's only gotten worse over the years. Uh, it started with uh, uh, one uh, additional tier of of worker, and and now at this count, I have we're at we're sitting at about twelve for General Motors alone. So, like, it we we've we were we're so divided because of this. Uh, people are you know not making enough to you know move out of the house, uh, you know out of their parents' house, or, or not have to live with a roommate or or things like that. Like that used to be a, a auto was a pretty standard job that you could you know raise a family with, uh, send send a couple of your kids to college, that sort of thing. And um, and I think that this strike is is acknowledging that we've been you know giving up so much over you know this past two decades or longer and uh we need to get it back and i think that the main reason the main reason that this strike is so different uh is is that we're actually we're front and centering the the concerns of the workers we're actually talking about the issues um when uh president sean fain read the uh the the workers demands which used to be called the president's demands you know he said these are these are what we're fighting for usually it's a bargaining convention and uh you know we, we there's a lot of behind the scenes action and then we just wait until uh contracts up and then we wait until you know the strikes over to basically f- figure out what what the uh what the agreement is and in this we're getting updates weekly uh it's amazing and i think by in- involving the workers uh we are actually uh we're, we're getting them motivated and, and they are, and they are fighting and they are speaking their minds and they're ready to win. And I think that's how this is going to be won. We're, that's how we're going to change this. Yeah. Uh, what if uh, Brandon, if you wanted to jump in and really get to this question of what are the sort of the key demands uh, of these striking auto workers? Yeah. I mean, the, the interesting thing about having a contract campaign um, to win these demands is that, you know, this hasn't basically been done before in the UAW. Um, you know, not since the 1930s when, you know, the members formed the union uh, to begin with. So the interesting thing about a contract campaign is that it actually, you know, it's just elevating the demands that have been, been talked about on the shop floor the whole time, right? So everyone's talked about the fact that we're not keeping up with the costs of living, right? So we need to get COLA back. So we need to restore all the concessions that were given away after bankruptcy. You know, the the story is that we helped save the company when it needed us. And that was supposed to be temporary. And then since then, we haven't recovered um, and restored all the things that we lo- uh, lost. And the tiers were established, cost of living, the COLA was suspended. Um, and it fractured our union, right? And it was also led by corrupt leadership that didn't want to uh, fight for those things and reverse the trend. Um, in that time, we've seen uh, Ford, GM, and Stellantis make record profits over the last 10 years. They've made a quarter of a trillion dollars, $250 billion in profits. And the cost, of, um, the wages of our, our membership has not kept up with the cost of living. Um, we have, we're living in one of the most productive times, right, in, in American capitalism. And, uh, you know, technology is advancing. We're talking about a transition to electric vehicles. And our members are not seeing the benefits of any of this. So it's time to restore COLA. It's time to get a significant wage increase. You know, 40% is what we asked for in order to um, basically just regain what we've lost and what we've not kept up with, right, and then build from there. Um, 
we need to end the tiers, you know, two workers working right next to each other should not be on different progressions. One should, you know, one has a pension, one doesn't. Um, it's ridiculous. You know, we need to end tiers because not only does it lead to different benefits and different compensation for, uh, you know, members doing the same exact work, it also uh, divides the union, right? It really uh, is a strike against solidarity, um, which is what the union should be all about. Um, you know, there's, you know, so many other demands, right? One of the most uh, one of the boldest ones we have is for a 32-hour work week at 40 hours pay, meaning, uh, you know, you don't lose any pay, but you work less. And after 32 hours, if you choose to, you you can make overtime pay after 32 hours, right? Um, that is, I think, just pointing to the fact that American workers are overworked and underpaid, right? We have members who are working seven days, 12-hour shifts, right? Um, workers deserve to have a life, Right. They deserve to be able to pursue their creative interests, you know, their their passions, their hobbies, spend time with their families, you know, watch their parents grow old and, and see their their children grow up um, and, and get to cherish those moments. That's not true right now for so many of our members who um, are working like crazy and also not seeing uh, the, the, the the compensation for, for what the value that they're producing and the profits that they're producing for these companies. So, you know, the other uh, major issue at stake in this fight, right, is just the, the future of manufacturing in this country, right? We're seeing tons of, uh, we've seen tons of plant closures, over 60 plants closed over the last couple of decades. Uh, we need to stop that, right? Um, at the same time, as securing um, better language on, on job security and, and plant closures, the right to strike over them is really important. Um, we also have to make sure that the transition to electric vehicles is a just transition, right? Right now, uh, the Biden administration up until recently was just pouring you know, billions of dollars into the transition to electric vehicles um, into the big three. And then the big three was just forming joint ventures with foreign companies to set up these battery plants. And with absolutely, uh, with labor, the UAW, the labor movement having no say over that, no guarantees that this was going to be union labor, no conversation about this work being under the master agreement. And they were exploiting that because they want to transfer electric vehicle labor from union to non-union, right? That's, that's, let's just be honest. And what does that mean? That means that we're going to have standards that are going to decrease, right? Just as an example that that Sean loves to, uh, Sean Fain loves to, to give is, you know, the Lordstown Assembly Plan when it closed a few years ago, uh, the wage was thirty-two dollars an hour, right? Uh, when it closed a couple of years later, they opened the Ultium Battery Cell Plant, which we just recently organized, um, and the starting wage was not then sixteen fifty. It was cut in half the wage, right? That's the future, right? That's the green industry future um, that's coming if the labor movement and the UAW doesn't stand up. So those are the demands and they're existential. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I really appreciate that, that end point about the electric vehicle transition because I think that's that, that's a sort of like a huge sort of looming, you know, transition that, that, we, that we have to reckon with. And the fact that electric vehicles and battery in the battery industry is is extremely like anti-union and unorganized and and these master agreements and 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 having really militant uaw is really important so that workers aren't left behind um as we go about that and so the uaw has also been sort of employing this very interesting strategy uh that they're calling uh the, the stand-up strike 
you know, which is a very clear sort of hearkening back to to the UAW's sort of great history with the sit-down strikes in, in Flint, Michigan in the 1930s. So, so Chris, I wanted to throw this to you about what exactly what, what exactly is this sort of stand-up strike strategy and and why was this decided, you think, versus having all sort of 150,000 auto workers go uh, at, on strike all at once? Yeah, so the way this one works, uh, the stand-up strike works is everyone uh, who isn't currently on strike will be working with an expired contract, which means we maintain the status quo. Uh, things can't necessarily change. We have no arbitration, but a lot of the workers are still working. There's no extended contract, but uh, others are now on strike. And I think that the reason why we picked this is because it's not predictable. If you put out every single auto worker, um, you know, you can just calculate uh, all the auto workers, 147,000 times $500 in uh, strike funds, and then however much uh, uh, health insurance costs. And you can find out pretty quickly, pretty easily, uh, you know, how how quickly that, that money can be uh, spent. And, and we have a lot in our strike fund, but um, – this is, you know, you, 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 we're, we're, we're doing this in, in like forums, you know, like we're saying, oh, it could go this long or whatever. Um, but with an unpredictable strategy like this, uh, the companies don't know which factories are going to go out. Uh, so some of them, uh, including my own, are working 12-hour shifts. And at one point, we were running out of food in the uh, cafeteria, in, the, uh, in, in like the vending machines and all that, because they didn't know if we were going to be a strike uh, target. And it turned out we weren't. So then it's like, okay, well, we stockpiled all these vehicles, and uh, now we um, we have to keep running, I guess. Uh, do we have enough parts to run? Uh, those sorts of questions are now being, like, asked, and, and, and the companies don't know what's going on. We don't know what's going on. We're just going to work. And uh, I think that because of this, this is completely unpredictable, uh, this is an excellent strategy because this, this maximizes our leverage. This gets us to... Uh, all participate. Uh, I don't think anyone's in the UAW has worked with an expired contract, not at least in the big three. Usually they just get extended. Um, so this is really a learning experience for us all. And uh, it's it's fun to see the interesting knockdown effects, such as, uh, say, uh, one uh, the engine plant that thought they were going to go down, sent a bunch of engines to Wentzville, and it turns out Wentzville was closed. And now they got to bring all those engines back, but unfortunately, nobody can load those. So that's just one of the instances that's that's we we didn't nobody would have predicted that would have happened, or at least not on GM. And uh, yeah, that's what happened. And uh, it that's that's I think that's exactly why they they picked the strategy because uh, unpredictability uh, is is a definitely an advantage. Yeah, so we're so we're, we're approaching the the end of the show. You know, time moves quick on radio, and and I feel like we we could talk for hours. I, I think uh, about about this topic. Um, but before we close out, I just wanted to ask if listeners are interested in in supporting uh, these striking workers, what are the resources that they can go to? Um, I'll go to Brandon, and then I can close out with Chris. Right. So I'm gonna make a pitch for our nationwide listeners, but also our New York City uh, listeners, given that this is the NYC uh, show, right? Um, you know, nationwide, especially if you're in the Midwest, you know, get yourself to the picket line and support workers on the line uh, for those who are already out in, in Wentzville, Toledo, um, and in Detroit, in, in Michigan. Um, 
so, you know, as the stand up strike strategy continues and we'll learn which plants are asked to stand up, uh, you know, in, in the near future, in the coming days, um, you know, if you if you're in those areas, please go out and support. Right. Um, I think uh, the international right now, like follow the international social media, because we will be putting out a lot more ways that the, the rest of the, um, you know, folks following this uh, closely in the labor movement and, and beyond uh, can plug in. For folks in New York, um, I, I do want to say that I, I've been talking to folks within uh, you know, DSA and others to coordinate more uh, direct support. Um, we do have uh, some parts depots in uh, you know the Indy area, um, in New York, uh, in Connecticut, in, in Massachusetts that are not like the longest trip, right? They're not like a trip to Detroit <laughs> to be able to do strike support. So if and when those places are called out on strike, um, then uh, we will be uh, communicating, uh, you know, when where, how to get there, et cetera, um, as well as uh, ways to, to um, you know, join uh, flyering um, in the community and canvassing and, and uh, you know, s- spreading awareness with consumers at dealerships and, and so many other ways to, to plug in. So, you know, this is just the beginning because we're in this fight as long as it takes to win. Uh, so, you know, if for folks in New York, <laughs> you know, if, if it, we haven't, uh, you know, done uh, you know, all that much at this point yet, um, it's, it's, it's coming. We're going to be plugging in directly. Yeah, this has been fantastic. Uh, yeah, thanks for coming on, Brandon. And, and, and Chris, uh, thank you for having this incredible perspective on this. And, yeah, this is the, – the whole world is watching, and, and I think we're all excited to see what comes of this. Uh, so you've been listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener sponsor WBAI and NYC Broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com. You can find us on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com, or on Twitter at NYCRPM. Also, Chris, if you want to say goodbye. Uh, you, yeah, sorry. I forgot to unmute. Thank you so much for having me. Brandon nailed everything I was going to say anyway. So thank you, uh, WBAI <laughs> and RPM, and uh, I love you all. Thanks okay. for having us, Chris. Stand up with the UAW. Thank you. Have a good night, New York. Ah!